0: hello and welcome to the new books network new books in history and caribbean studies i'm your host r grant kleiser with me today is dr yipa mulik dr mulik is currently a lecturer in modern history at city university of london and has written on various topics including maritime marinage privateering the age of evolutions and something i'll trust he'll speak a lot more about today Microregions and intercolonial relations. Dr. Mulick's new book, out now via Cambridge University Press, is entitled In a Sea of Empires Networks and Crossings in the Revolutionary Caribbean. This work highlights the revolutionary fervor, political turmoil, conflict, and chaos of the late 18th and early 19th centuries that created opportunities for intercolonial politics, law, and networks in the Leeward Island region of the Caribbean as British, Danish, French, Spanish, and Swedish actors competed and cooperated with one another. Dr. Mulek stresses the border crossing nature of life in this region that fostered tensions between local interest and imperial policy and subverted formal imperial boundaries and claims to sovereignty, yet defined the Leeward Islands. All in all, this early period of quote unquote globalization was in part initiated from the bottom up with local actors, local concerns, and various cross-border networks encouraging regional integration. Dr. Mulik, congratulations and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so first, Dr. Mulek, just so our listeners can get a bit situated uh, on uh, this, this topic, can you briefly describe the context of the late 18th century Leeward Islands? You know, who are the, some of the major actors, the empires, and islands, and where exactly are we on the globe?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I am writing on a topic that I imagine most people don't actually know all that much about, including um, in, including even historians of other parts of the world, because it's not only is it a set of small islands, it's arguably a set of, of small empires we're dealing with here as well. Um, the Leeward Islands are situated in the Caribbean, in the eastern part of the Caribbean Sea. It's it's half of the Lesser Antilles. Um, they're right off the coast of Puerto Rico and, and encompasses sort of an extraordinary number and density of different imperial actors in this period. So we're talking about uh, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Danish, the Swedish, and the British empires all essentially lying neck and neck on a series of very small... Um, Islands, many of them not actually having the kind of soil, or the kind of uh, the kind of environment to grow a whole lot of crops uh, and to grow a whole lot of sugar. So instead, these are are predominantly uh, trading islands, uh, port-based uh, economies, and like I said, they're they're held by a bunch of different empires, which means that. Um, even in this period, and especially in the in the aftermath of first the Seven Years' War and then the Revolutionary War, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of colonies that change hand as well, which is how you get empires like the Swedish Empire, which is otherwise not necessarily a very big player in the Atlantic world, involved uh, here in in the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, and and why did you choose this region in particular and uh, this time period? So I'm I'm an Atlantic and a Caribbean historian
1: in one way, but in a different way, I'm 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 more of a global historian, really. Um, and the reason why I went with the Leeward Islands for my for what started out as a PhD project and and now has become my first book is that the region is it's extremely interesting because of this density of imperial actors, but it's also a good illustration of um, what I think is a broader global phenomenon, which is. Uh, interperipheral imperial spaces, these parts of the imperial map or the imperial, uh, the imperial world, which has uh, interaction and, and fluidity and networks that cut across formal boundaries. And because you have all these smaller players, including the, the Scandinavian empires, those kinds of spaces often fall out of bigger, uh, both global and 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 more specifically, uh, British or French histories. Right. So, it was it was an opportunity to to look at an area that's been somewhat overlooked in the scholarship to bring in some of these smaller imperial players and then think about what does life or what does um, imperial life look like when you're standing at the very edge of empires so or the very peripheries of empire and and take that as your starting point. Uh, I I did it. With the Leeward Islands in particular, because I know the, the Atlantic history, I know the Caribbean history, uh, I know the languages that are involved. I, I read most of the languages that are covered in the islands, including the Scandinavian languages. Um, but but it, the story could, in some ways, have been told from, say, the Gold Coast in Africa, or Southeast Asia, or other places where there are similar kind of spa- peripheral spaces.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, and 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 kind of speaking of that, uh, you employ the term. Inter-imperial microregion, a lot as sort of your theoretical concept in this book. Can you describe a little bit more about what you mean by that term, inter-imperial microregion, and and what made you choose this sort of theoretical concept as a way to analyze this topic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the micro-region is probably the big concept of the book. It's, it's sort of the, the more conceptual or theoretical contribution of the book. At the most basic or ideal typical level, it's, it's an area that's inhabited by multiple different polities, including at least some polities that are imperial in the nature, um, and which has an especially high degree of interaction between and across these different polities. Um, the big argument of the book is that this type of space is in fact relatively common in the period of Euro- European overseas colonialism, um, especially in those places where empires existed side by side and where imperial rivalry sort of uh, uh, drove strategies, both at the imperial and at the colonial level. Um, and, And the reason to look at the leeward islands from this perspective is that these imperial rivalries and the politics of the eight of revolutions with all the turmoil that creates looks extremely different when seen from within the micro-regional space rather than when seen from the uh, from the european capitals because all of a sudden rather than rivalry being a defining feature it's really all the cooperation and integration that happens in spite of and it's sometimes sometimes because of that rivalry
0: yeah, definitely, and and so related to that, um, how do you define uh, empire in this book, and and perhaps how does your definition uh, differ from previous ones, given this microregional analysis?
1: That's a good question. Um, I'm I'm sure uh, there will be some pushback because it's uh, the way I think about empire in general, but in this book in particular is not. Um, it's it it it's meant to be slightly provocative right so the, the the networks is in the is in the subtitle of the book and and my approach to empire is a very networked one so i essentially think of empires as the sum of multiple different partially overlapping empire uh, uh, networks multiple different partially overlapping networks each of which each of the networks has a set of practices uh, and a set of institutions that define it and they often involve slightly different actors um, but, you know, uh, imagine missionary networks, merchant networks, uh, networks of uh, agricultural production or other sets of practices that bind together people and drive activity. Uh, each of these networks then contribute something to a bigger thing that we can think of as empire. So if you take the British Empire, for example, the British Empire is constituted of multiple different empire uh, networks. Some of these networks are... Uh, what we traditionally think of when we think of imperial politics. So they'll involve uh, officials, they'll involve people in London and, and men on the ground, so to speak, doing a lot of policymaking. But other networks are much less straightforwardly imperial in nature and actually often involve people who are not formally part of the British Empire, but whose activities nonetheless add to something that, that at the aggregate looks like the British Empire, right? The The reason why this kind of networked, uh, multi-layered approach to empire is useful when thinking about peripheral spaces in particular, is that it becomes very clear when standing in Danish St. Croix or Swedish uh, St. Swedish Bartholomew, that a lot of stuff taking place in those non-British spaces actually have a lot to do with what is going on in the British empire. And that a lot of those actors, whether they're, they're Danish or Swedish or French or something else, at least Spend part of the time contributing to the building of the British Empire, whether that's through economic activities, through free trade, or it's by maintaining a plantation complex in the Caribbean that, uh, that props up and supports the British Empire. So the, the point here is to uh, look at empires and aggregate of networks and then try to disaggregate those networks a bit more and see how much overlap there actually is between empires, especially uh, at, the, at the periphery of the border zones.
0: Yeah, I think that is um, certainly a, a great contribution to your work in terms of, in terms of empire and Caribbean studies. And I, just, I guess I just wanted to ask, um, besides that sort of intervention on this definition of empire, uh, where do you think your work diverges from previous histories of this part of the Caribbean um, in, say, it's connected or versus comparative approach or sort of bottom-up or, or any other sort of insights and interventions that you want to highlight here?
1: Yeah, all, all those uh, all those buzzwords you said are, are part of a part of my interventions. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I would say to take them one at a time. Um, there's a regional aspect here, like I said before. I am an Atlantic historian, but I also think of myself as a global historian. And and the way I try to frame the book is as a global history of the Caribbean, rather than than first as a Caribbean or first as an Atlantic history, and that means. Um, you know, I, I, I came up as an Atlantic historian. I came out of New York University's program in Atlantic history, and I, and I very much like what Atlantic history has done to blow up the the boundaries of, of more limited national or imperial historiographies. But at the same time, my fear is that Atlantic history is becoming just as as uh, constraining in those as those older national or imperial histories have been, and I think that the new um you know, the sort of Atlantic has now established so much as a subfield that it imposes its own its own boundaries on on, on the way people work. Uh, and the idea here is to approach it more of, as a global history, not, global in the sense that everything needs to be included, but global in the sense that the kind of patterns that I'm trying to identify in the Atlantic can certainly be found in many other parts of the world, right? So there's a regional aspect here where I'm pushing back against uh, uh, Atlantic as a category a bit. There's a, a, a bottom-up aspect too, which which has a lot to do with what, what I just talked about with uh, Empire as a sum of networks, right? That that empires really do not look like monolithic entities and that empire in itself doesn't really do or act, but rather is composed of multiple different people acting uh, with various interests and various aims in mind. And then the sum of that might be something we can think of as an empire. So that's sort of a natural consequence of starting not just from the bottom up, but really from a, uh, a peripheral space in some sense. Um the last thing is the last intervention here is a uh, is more of a chronological intervention, right? So, um, mm-hmm. the revolutionary Caribbean is key, and the age of revolutions is the primary um, chronological framing of the book and of my research questions, but. The, the thing that drives analysis is in some ways a, a puzzle or a contradiction, right? Because we think of the age of revolutions as this moment where the Atlantic world is, is turned upside down, where uh, the United States gained its independence and the Latin American uh, revolutionary period sort of drives the, uh, uh, splits the Spanish and the Portuguese empires in two. And, and we have the Haitian revolution in the middle of this period as the big a symbol of black resistance to empire and, and a sort of a self-forged uh, uh, decolonization driven by formerly enslaved individuals. And the puzzle that I'm trying to grapple with is how is it that the Leeward Islands in particular and other parts of the Caribbean have so... Much stability and the status quo, in a way, succeeds monumentally in, in this 50 year period, right? There is certain fear of revolution and there are some uprisings, but really, this is a period of continuity and stability in many other aspects, right? All the way up to the abolition of slavery in the British Atlantic. And my puzzle in that sense is try to figure out, even though there, there is revolutionary upheaval, that Leeward Islands look like bastions of almost counter-revolutionary stability. Um, so there's a there's a chronological periodization uh,
0: push there as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and you know, speaking specifically about the, the Caribbean and, and um, the Leeward Islands, it, it's often such a, a hard place to study, um, I think, in, in, at least in my experience as, as a scholar of that region, uh, with local records often being lost due to weather and, and climate and with many of the, or most of the remaining documents scattered to different imperial metropoles and written in multiple languages. Um, so logistically, a, a, hard, a hard challenge for, for any scholar. And um, so h- how were you able to overcome some of these challenges and, and construct this, this more of a bottom-up narrative of the, the, the um, Lourdes Islands? That's a great question, and and I'm sure anybody who works on
1: this part of the Caribbean are, are awfully familiar with the uh, the great and arduous task it is to actually piece together records from multiple different archives, and, and like you said, through multiple different languages, too. Um, it involved a lot of time, uh, is all I can say. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I went to archives in the Caribbean, in North America, in Europe, specifically Denmark and Sweden and France and, and, and Britain, and... Um, various different kinds of trips some of them were sort of more parachuting in i think i had two and a half weeks in in sweden which meant that i really had to sit every day and and just document as much as i could while in q and in the uk i had more of a a luxurious five months to to (laughs) deep dive into the archives which is very nice because q is well organized and super easy to do research there the Caribbean, on the other hand, after I arrived, I realized that the archive was only actually open twice a week, and then yeah. <laughs> the rest of the time I was bound to, uh, yeah. you know, write up the project on the beach, which was which was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the point here is the point here is twofold, right? That that on the one hand, doing this kind of work, this kind of work that tries to be not just transnational but transimperial, uh, and I think any. Good work in the Caribbean and these small islands has to be trans-imperial, but that does require multi-sided, multi-archival research as well. And and the fact of the matter is that that kind of research is is expensive, right? So I was blessed with some grant money from from NYU and elsewhere to do these kinds of trips across across the Atlantic, but but it's it's a real obstacle in in many ways to actually do it, and it's not just that you have to go to different imperial archives. It's also that you never quite know what's going to be in the colonial holdings in the Caribbean and what's going to be in the imperial holdings in, in Europe. And sometimes this even crosses imperial boundaries where uh, I found a whole trove of British Price admiralty, court, uh, uh, admiralty court records in a Danish archive, which I don't think anybody had really used before because nobody knew it was there, right? And there's lots of those examples where things just cross over in bizarre ways. The other side of it, of course, is language right the if you're dealing with five different empires you kind of have to read records in five different languages and phd programs even even well-funded ones are are not necessarily that good at equipping people with the necessary language skills usually what we can hope for is a couple of languages and actually having having that many languages is is something that some of us are gifted with because we grew up in places where where that's the norm so that's that's just my sort of the lock of the draw of of being born in scandinavia
0: (laughs) definitely well, well moving to the to the more of the meat of your work. Um, your first chapter talks about interimperial smuggling and the legalized free port trade and I'm wondering what these two phenomena uh, did in forming this interimperial microregion that you talk so much about.
1: Sure. Um, so th- there's there're two things here. There's the the legalized or the formal free trade which really takes up a uh, pace and the period that I'm describing as freeport systems and freeport acts become more and more common. The British looking at what is happening in the Dutch Empire and the Dutch successes of the 18th century adopt their own freeport systems. And the Danish and the Swedish empires very explicitly position their colonies in the Caribbean as freeport colonies in order to attract neutral trade um, and foreign trade. And, and that's sort of the, the legalized version of the uh, of the free commerce between colonies the other side of it is what's been going on for much longer which is which is smuggling right and and sort of the 150 200 years of uh, de facto free trade that has taken place especially on the smaller islands in many ways the move to a legalized free trade system is the acknowledgement that there is very little imperial and colonial administrations can do to fully police the trade taking place here um, but even after the freeport systems legalize some of the trade and, and allow certain goods to be traded freely between empires, um, smuggling continues very much unabated. And there's plenty of trade that that isn't actually allowed according to the rules, but which carries on. The biggest example of which is the you know, Denmark is the first empire to abolish the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, but nonetheless the Danish colonies in the Caribbean continue to be some of the biggest slave mm-hmm. markets in the Lesser Antilles for at least a decade on. So there are lots of examples of, of smuggling even within a freeport regime. The importance of, of mm-hmm. both smuggling and legalized freeport, semi legalized freeport is is the integrative force that this kind of economic activity has in the Leeward Islands. So you end up with a very strong community of merchants who very often care very little about political allegiance or which empire formally Mm -hmm. claims which colony. What they really care about is uh, letting the trade flow as much as possible. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and those, interactions that that commercial activity across boundaries becomes one of the defining feature of uh, tying together the region and creating a micro regional um, level of integration that often trumps uh, national or imperial allegiances for the actors within the region for the white actors at least you know i i have this phrase in the book which is that essentially what binds together the leeward islands are the 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 dual forces of free trade and unfree labor and we can get to the unfree labor Mm -hmm. part later
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah moving on to besides just trade and and you know commercial interactions you also talk a lot about um Violence imperial warfare and slave revolts and and these are two phenomena that you actually talk about that open up uh, possibilities for trans-imperial cooperation as well as conflict. So can you speak a little bit more about what that that role does in creating in creating this microregion?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Violence is an integral part of this story, and because the, it takes place in the middle of the Age of Revolutions, but also in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, the Revolutionary Wars, and the aftermath of the American Revolutionary War, uh, inter-imperial warfare is sort of almost a constant. Right, that's a constant backdrop to almost all of the events that I'm describing, um, with various players involved and various players being neutral. But but nonetheless, the, the point is that that if you look, especially from a European perspective, or even from a continental American perspective. This is a this is a period of extraordinary organized violence. Now, most of that violence doesn't actually spill into the Leeward Islands very much at all. There's a few occupations, but because of the integrated nature and because of these merchant communities that I described before, um, people don't have a big problem with being occupied by a foreign empire as long as that foreign empire doesn't prohibit trade. Right. So, so inter-imperial warfare and rivalry is absolutely a factor, but the real sort of systemic perpetration of violence taking place within the islands in this period is is all internal. It's the it's the fear of black violence among the white planters, and then it's the response to that fear through the the system of slavery, of course, but especially the kind of violent crackdowns on any kind of rumors of revolt or conspiracy that we see throughout the seventeen nineties and the and the first 20 years or so of the 19th century, right? The violence that's been inherent in the plantation system and in the system of of, mm-hmm. of slavery um, expands in many ways at the turn of the century because of fears of a Haitian-like revolution spilling out, and you see multiple occasions where uh, a single rumor of a conspiracy on a single plantation somewhere in the Leeward Islands becomes almost a wildfire and leads to um, many people being executed, hanged, uh, and, and sort of news spreading from island to island aboard ships of, of potential slave revolts. Um, and, and of course, the Haitian Revolution and the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, Haitian independence only intensifies these fears uh, to the point where you have uh, Danish islands where the entire uh, Francophone militia of of uh, both white and, and free people of color who are French-speaking get disbanded because um, people speaking French are seen as potentially revolutionary, instable in, in elements within the colony despite the fact that they've been there for their entire life. Right. So you have this the dual effects of interimperial violence and intra-colonial violence and the, and the fear of slave uprisings that lead to a further integration in the micro-region because essentially... The white elites are cooperating with each other in spite of inter-imperial rivalry in order to put down any potential slave uprisings. The, the existential fear of a slave uprising that could spill over across the region is so strong that uh, any political uh, antagonism between colonies is put aside uh, in, in the face of that. And that's sort of the other big thing that then leads to further integration.
0: Yeah, definitely, and, and and I think this re- relates to a quote you have on on page one hundred and two that quote uh, the Leeward Islands functioned as one integrated slave system, and so I, I guess um, if you could speak a little bit more about yeah that this role the unfree labor regime that you've been talking about and how that kind of created this uh, integrated uh, slave system across these islands and across these empires.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when we think about slave when we think about the plantation complex and we think about slave society in a Caribbean context those kinds of studies and those kinds of histories are very often coming out of the bigger Caribbean islands places like Jamaica or uh, or Saint-Domingue or other large plantation islands which had huge populations of enslaved people. Now the Leeward Islands are in some ways different because not all of them were these agricultural powerhouses. Some of them had large sugar plantations, right? So St. Croix uh, uh, in the 18th century rivaled Puerto Rico in, in, in agricultural output. But, but for the most part, these are these are more barren and many of them can barely uh, grow any crops at all, including St. Saint, Saint Bartholomew. Um, that does not mean, however, that they aren't involved in slavery and, and, and on free labor. And very much what ends up happening is that you have some islands that are sugar-producing or cotton-producing, and then you have a whole lot of other islands that are essentially um, propping up that system. So the, the smaller trade-based uh, societies like St. John's or, or, or St. Bartholomew, Exist fully within a system of slavery, where the goods that they're trading are either produced by slaves, or they are meant to continue and perpetuate the production of uh, of slave plantations elsewhere. Right. That's why the Danish islands become uh, f- central places for transshipping goods and transshipping slaves. That's why the Dutch free ports, even the ones that themselves don't necessarily uh, generate a lot of output end up being extremely important as, as both places of transshipment, but also places that issue papers and sell uh, sell ship and, sh- and ship supplies. Um, many of these small islands become sort of ports, uh, uh, taverns of the sea, where you go to recruit uh, crew members and, and, and pick up supplies. And and the point here is that because it's the Caribbean and because it's the Caribbean at the turn of the century, all the big economic activity is essentially about um, things produced by slaves, right? So it becomes an integrated slave system, both in the way that what I talked about before, which is each island becomes its neighbor's guarantor of security, regardless of political affiliation, but also economically because all the activities that take place, while they might not be directly coming out of a sugar plantation, they take place in order to continue that production. And once the sugar production and the production of cotton and other goods start to go down, those smaller neutral islands uh, also see most of the revenue disappearing.
0: Yeah, and, and on the flip side here, and and that's all... Obviously, so important. But on the flip side, here you also speak, I think, really well about um, free people of color and maroons and and slaves from various empires contributing in some way to this this region as well uh, and to the dynamics of cooperation and and contestation that happen in this micro region. So, um, how, how, you know, uh, going, going away from the sort of plantation dynamic, but sort of the resistance to that plantation dynamic, how do those actors uh, fit into this story?
1: That's, uh, that's absolutely true because as I said, this is, you know, empires in, in my story are made of m- multiple networks, but the micro region itself is also made up of multiple networks. And some of those networks are very much the, uh, inter elite, white networks that essentially exist to prop up continued white supremacy in the caribbean Mm -hmm. but many other networks take place on a completely different level which is um, tying together free people of color or enslaved communities across different islands right just Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. news travel within networks of, of planters and merchants and sea captains news also travel on uh, on uh, on ships by enslaved people or by few people of color who are very often crewing a lot of these vessels, um, and in that sense, there's sort of a, a a a very integrated network of of black voices and Afro Caribbean voices that spread news, but that also built a different kind of community here, right? So so that is true through the plantations, but it's also through true in a lot of the Maroon communities that exist throughout the region. So Maroon communities being these small communities of uh, formerly enslaved people who escape off the plantation. And because they exist in this maritime world of the Leeward Islands with relatively small islands and multiple empires, it becomes relatively easy to cross from one jurisdiction into another um, and sometimes even cross out of imperial jurisdiction altogether and end up on these small Uh, islands or in these sort of forested hills where the the reach of the empires can't quite reach them, right? Mm. Those communities, though, do not exist in pure isolation. Rather, they keep being connected to a lot of the Afro-Caribbean and black networks that exist in the region. So there is essentially a, I don't want to say parallel, because it is connected to the other networks, but there is a a layer of the micro-region that is very much uh, sort of a a layer, a network of resistance and pushback against the uh, against the white supremacist uh, perpetuating slavery network of, of of white elites, right? And those sometimes the streams get crossed, and you see you see examples, especially when it comes to the abolition of slavery or the abolition of the slave trade. You see those uh, black networks mobilizing and using different imperial jurisdictions and legislations against each other in order to uh, maximize the degrees of freedom that they can get, right? Why would you, if you have the potential to escape the bonds of slavery on a French or Spanish or Danish island, in order to flee to a British island where slavery has just been abolished, then why not do it, right? And we do see a lot of this marinage happening around the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, and we also see early examples of it with a lot of slaves escaping from British and Danish islands onto the Spanish islands where they're promised freedom as long as they convert to Catholicism. Now, some of that information is basically not true and is based in, in, in the rumor that circulates in these networks, but nonetheless it leads to pretty big shifts in in, in, in uh the populations as they move from one jurisdiction to another.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and such an interesting uh, dynamic of parallels um, and different regional uh, networks coming together there. B- before we kind of go on um, with this topic and, and especially wanted to talk about the the abolition of the slave trade and, and, and the dynamics that that phenomenon plays uh, into the story, I like to. I just ask you a quick question because you do mention two other phenomena, which I think are really fascinating and and often aren't spoken about at least in and this in this time period, which is ah uh, privateering and and the prize court system. And um, not many historians, I think, are, talk about the prize courts as much, even though they're some of the richest records in terms of uh, those that still still exist in, in the colonial record and and especially privateering. Uh, is often seen as a sort of a 17th century or early 18th century phenomenon not spoken as much about in the 18 in the late 18th and early 19th century, although the numbers actually are, are quite high uh, of the number of private of privateers that operate at that time period. So can you speak a little bit about those two phenomena, the prize court and and the privateering and and what role these two um, uh, these two topics are, are, are playing in in this microregional uh, system?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's. Um, I think you're right to call out the fact that the the price court system has been for a long time, at least, neglected. And you know, the, some of the pioneering work is is mapping out the the legal intricacies of these systems were really done in the 60s and the 70s, but were never really published. So all of those of us who work on this have had to dig back into you know old PhD dissertations or uh, or or hopelessly out of print uh, d- uh, journal articles and things like that. But I think the good news is that I think that there's a wave of recent scholarship that's come out that's sort of more legal historical, um, starting with Lauren Benson, but with a bunch of other people too, who are are taking some of these systems more seriously. And it's important because they don't just tell us something about the the interesting stories of pirates. They also tell us a lot about how um, legal political interactions took place in the region. And, 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 you know, price courts and and admiralty courts really encompass a lot of different, um, a lot of different modes of interaction between the colonies. And even within the British empire, which colony in the lesser Antilles gets to be the seat of a price court becomes this big political question that really mobilizes different island societies against one another. And so there's a whole, there's a lot more to be said about that, but I think the good news is that people are starting to do it Mm -hmm. in, in my story specifically, um, you know, I don't. I, I the the boundary between privateering and piracy are blurry and and fussy and everybody who works on the topic knows this. But the interesting thing is that both of the phenom- phenomena continue for a long time after the golden age of of piracy. Right. What happens, especially in, in in my period, is that the Latin American wars of independence bring with them this whole new wave of opportunities for privateering, and you see a bunch of enterprising captains and financiers and crew members, both in North America but also across the Caribbean, used the opportunity of Latin American wars of independence to send out their own ships and rob the, the fleets of Spain and Portugal, essentially. Um, how, what often happened would be that uh, aspiring sovereign leaders in Latin American republics in the middle of the war period would would send out agents to big ports in North America in particular and sell these Letters of Mark. So you would get uh, Artigas or Bolívar or other revolutionary leaders selling Letters of Mark to financiers who would then put together crews, outfit ships, and send them Uh, out into the Atlantic in order to uh, rob Spanish ships or Portuguese ships in some cases. Now, these... um these enterprises were not necessarily for the benefit of the political cause of the Latin American revolutionaries, but the consequence was that their claims to sovereignty were essentially projected out into the waters, right? Because if a privateering ship sailing under the flag of Artigas is taken in by a British or French court, and they're faced with a letter of mark that seems genuine, but is, is signed by this upstart revolutionary leader, it in some ways forces the British or the French court to actually take those claims seriously and either approve of their legitimacy or dismiss it. So um, it makes sense from a political perspective from the Latin American revolutionary leaders to send out these letters of Mark. And it makes sense from the financiers and the crew members uh, who take up the costs to, to uh, sail under those colors because it means that they can essentially uh, conduct legal quote unquote legal privateering against uh, uh, Spain and Portugal. Now the way the the, micro reading comes into it is that a lot of the crews in particular, not just operated in the Caribbean, but were picked up in the Caribbean and sold off the goods in the Caribbean. So you have places like the Swedish and Dutch and Danish islands really becoming hot spots for privateering activities, um, especially places like uh, St. Bartholomew. The Swedish island was uh, by many people seen as a pirate's nest and the the problem for the governors and the administrators of these these uh, neutral islands was that once the Latin American Wars of Independence had died down, a lot of the crews didn't necessarily stop their privateering activities and, in fact, continue to sail the waters. And a lot of them weren't necessarily as... Um, discerning in which ships they decided to board so you have several court cases that came up where british or french or other ships were taken despite the fact that the leadoff off mark was one possibly out of date and two only allowed the capture of spanish vessels so it goes from being a boom in privateering to essentially becoming a boom in piracy a hundred years after the the golden age of piracy is supposed to be over
0: hmm. definitely and um yeah, it's, I think it's a fascinating uh, topic that is not often written about um, in the classic histories of the Caribbean. Um, so moving back uh, to the the slave trade and, and unfree labor, uh, in 1803 and 1807, the Danish and British uh, respectively officially abolished the transatlantic slave trade. But in your book, um, you highlight the massive level of illegal slave trading that resulted afterwards, and and you can you know look at uh, voyages, the transatlantic slave trade database, and see the millions of of people who were forcibly taken. Uh, from the west coast of Africa and brought across the Atlantic, even in the so-called age of of abolition. Um, so, what did and and so what did this contraband slaving practice do uh, to this regional these regional connections and networks that we've been discussing? And how did it foster tensions between imperial metropoles and and on the ground actors? Well, so
1: as I said before, the the region was driven by this dual fact of free trade and unfree labor and. Once um, metropolitan politics or imperial politics began to threaten that system, a lot of the integrating forces in the Caribbean or a lot of the the, the well-integrated uh, trans-imperial networks pushed back against it. Essentially, right? So you you found uh, there's always been tension between the official imperial metropolitan layer and the the ground colonial layer the the, the, the trans imperial networks uh, resisting attempts at, at governance if it means shutting down trade or not trading with partners just because of imperial rivalries but this really heightened during the period the early period of abolition because these official decrees of, of uh, seizing the the importation of slave meant um, Stopping the 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 flow of labor into the Caribbean, but also, like I said before, stopping the potentially putting an end to the role that a lot of these islands held as sort of nodal points in broader slaving networks across the Caribbean. Right, if if it's no longer possible to import slaves, all of a sudden your uh, your your sort of your role as a as a, a place of transshipping slaves also also comes into jeopardy. So there's, there's a, a, a sort of a, a pushback against it. But this pushback in many ways involves the local official layer as well, because a lot of these local officials, not so much governors. Governors tended to be men of empire in the sense that they were often sent from London or uh, Copenhagen or other places, and would often circulate within the broader imperial networks that spanned outside of the region. But the layer just below governors, the people who would sit on smaller courts, uh, you know, people who would be collecting taxes in the port, a lot of these mattresses were deeply embedded in the local. Trans-imperial inter-colonial networks, and were deeply embedded economically in the activities that uh, that were that these networks attempted to perpetuate the the kind of slave trade, but also the the broader slave economy that I just talked about. So there's a tension here, and there's a lot of attempts by. The low-level administrators and the other networks of merchants and planters to basically keep the trade going, and and they're relatively successful for a good ten years or so. Now, how successful they are is extremely difficult to say. Uh, as you said, there's we have some numbers from the the uh, transatlantic slave voyages, and then the new database on the inter-American slave trade in particular okay. is, is really good at, at highlighting the role of the Caribbean, not just intra-regional. Caribbean trade, but also trade between the Caribbean and and the Americas, right? But there's a there's a lot going on in these years, mm-hmm. but who knows what the numbers actually are, because it's all illegal, right? So basically, the it becomes very hard to find accurate numbers because all of a sudden people stop reporting it, and what they report yeah. instead is sort of circumspect ways of talking about it. But if you look at something like the uh, the price slaves, right? So what happens when a an illegal uh, importation of slaves get caught is that you confiscate all this all the enslaved people and you auction them off as, as prize slaves and you can see that the boom the numbers of prize slaves getting auctioned off in the first five or six years after abolition is really big and it's especially centered on places like totola and the British Virgin Islands where the local legal system is deeply corrupt and and basically everybody is involved in in, in doing these kinds of activities and they even end up, you know, it, it also indicates the the uh, ambiguity of actual abolition when when you can quote unquote free or liberate uh, an enslaved person off uh, a, a slave ship and then take them to an auction and auction off their ten year fifteen year apprenticeship period right so in many ways these local practices are also ways to make legal things that had otherwise been illegal right give the mm-hmm. make the practice continue under a different guise, but really it's the perpetuation of slavery. The other side of it here is that there's also plenty of uh, empires and colonies that are much more resistant to abolishing slavery, right? And the trade with Puerto Rico and the Spanish Empire um, becomes crucial for the smaller smaller empires. And as Britain um, seizes this importation of slaves, um, Cuba and Puerto Rico becomes even bigger markets and and the Danish traders and the Swedish traders certainly see this as an opportunity to carry on the trade and make even more money and and the proximity to places like Puerto Rico makes this key. Um, so there's a there's there's a story here of imperial um, power politics too when the British Empire uses the slave trade abolition as a way to, Project its own hierarchical position in the region by policing the waters and seizing the the interactions between the Spanish Empire and these smaller neutral empires in order to uh, stop the slave trade, much as what they do on the, on the on the West African
0: coast, as 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 a more familiar story to people. Yeah, definitely. And 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 your analysis of how Britain becomes a sort of de facto hegemon is a, is a a big part of this book. And um, if we had more time, I'd love to discuss more. But I guess people have to. To buy the book to find out more about how that happened. It's it's good to give people a reason yeah. to buy it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so finally, um, the last sort of substantive question here is, you know, going back to your comments on microregional analysis, um, how does this story that you've been you've been talking about in the book talks about of the Looit Islands relate to what you quote and and what C. A. Bailey says uh, is the first age of global imperialism of the nineteenth century?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good question, so I haven't talked a lot about uh, that side of it. I've talked about the framing in terms of the age of revolutions, but the other big framing of the book is, as you write to point out um, that this is really a an example of of the first age of global imperialism right This is the moment where I think and 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 others writing in the vein of Bailey uh, uh, argue is the period where we can talk about globalization as an actual force as the global of, of the global as an actual thing that 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 shapes um, you know regional practices and regional experiences and I think for the Caribbean this means essentially that the emerging forces of globalization and specifically globalization wrought by Empire uh, propels the, the the leeward islands at, to a role of prominence and centrality for an Atlantic system. Uh, both politically and economically, only then to take that that role, that prominence away with the end of, of the slave system or the plantation system. Now, um, you know, slavery continues and the aftermath of slavery very much continues after the 1830s when my book ends. But the economic prominence that this particular region had sort of fades away. And instead you see the, the people in the Caribbean, these networks, some of them simply um, Uproot and move elsewhere. So some of these slave trading networks move to the Indian Ocean, where they participate in other, uh, other circuits of contraband trade. Um, some of the merchants who have been involved, some of them based in North America, who have heavily, been heavily involved in supplying the the leeward islands and other parts of the caribbean with the supplies necessary to keep the plantation system going start trading uh start start taking taking part in the china trade or other parts of the asia trade instead right so some people simply leave and other networks within the region scramble to find new ways to uh to profit and 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 do something with the with the land they have Meanwhile, these uh, networks of free people of color grow exponentially as more and more people um, gain access to the kind of freedom that at least lets them travel between islands, uh, even even if it even if if poverty and and some kind of bondage is 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 kept for another forty or fifty years. Um, so globalization is important here because it the 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 globalizing forces taking place after the American Revolution propels the the region to center stage of of a global imperial history, um, but only for a short period of time. And and essentially the Caribbean as as a whole, but especially the small islands of the Caribbean sort of fall off the radar uh, after 50 or so years of limelight.
0: And um, so as as a final question here, um, as always, we like to ask uh, Dr. Malik, do you have any upcoming publications or projects uh, that we should be aware of? yeah
1: um I have a couple of of big things in the works now this is uh, this is the burden of a second book trying to trying to find something that uh, <laughs> that won't be uh, just a continuation of the first book and I, at this point I've worked on the first book for seven or eight years, and I really would rather not I, I continue to look at the same islands in a slightly different light. So what I've done instead is uh, the first of my new projects looks at similar dynamics of of interimperial integration and sort of the the tension between integration and rivalry but looks at it in the Asia Pacific world instead so sort of the the first sort of a big project that tries to tell the history of um, European expansion in the Asia Pacific in the 19th century but instead of looking at it from the perspective of London or Paris or uh Washington, it looks at it very much from these kind of interstitial spaces and from the perspective of liminal actors, both uh, local actors like Polynesian lawyers and and and. Uh, Chinese magistrates, but also from the perspective of these uh, European in-betweeners. So I'm looking at quite a few Danish merchants who are operating in the region and around Hong Kong and, and Singapore, and I'm looking at uh, Dutch financiers working out of Indonesia and financing various other imperial enterprises across the Pacific. So that's sort of the first big project, which is uh, a, something that's going to take a while before it comes out, I'm sure, because there's a lot of work to be done there. And um, the second project is slightly smaller, and is is uh, even more Um, far away from the first project and it's it's sort of a um, a history of imperial networks and uh, jurisdictional politics in hong kong in particular told from uh, from the founding of the colony up until the 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 protest last year and and as more and more has happened over my research period of the last year, more and more of it is going to be focused on sort of the history of protesting and the history of contentious politics, but within this continuation of an imperial, colonial, and legal framework.
0: Great. Well, we're really looking forward to seeing those both of those works in print one day. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mulick, uh, for your time and for this really great discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So Dr. Muluk's, uh book, In a Sea of Empires, Networks and Crossings in the Revolutionary Caribbean, is out now via Cambridge University Press. For the New Books Network, this is our Grant Kleiser saying thank you and see you next time.